NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. Aisha Roscoe, good morning. At least five people are dead after a shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado overnight. And he's back. Former President Donald Trump's Twitter account has been reinstated by the platform's new owner, Elon Musk. Plus, director J.D. Dillard's new movie, Devotion, tells the true story of a top Navy aviator during the Korean War. I just saw so much overlap with my dad's experience in the Navy. So to be able to kind of tell both of these stories at the same time was uh, kind of overwhelming. It's Sunday, November 20th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Police in Colorado Springs say the FBI is assisting in the investigation into last night's shooting at a gay nightclub. Five people were killed and 18 others were wounded when the gunman opened fire inside Club Q. Police spokeswoman Pamela Castro says authorities started getting reports of the shooting just before midnight. Numerous officers and medical immediately responded to the area and officers immediately made entry. They did locate one individual who believed to be the suspect inside. The suspect is in custody and is being treated at a hospital. The owners of Club Q credit customers for subduing the gunman. Officials in western New York say they hope the worst is over after the region got hit with as much as six and a half feet of snow this weekend. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says she's asking the federal government to declare an emergency for the area. And she says the state has increased the presence of National Guard members to help with snow removal. Vice President Kamala Harris is making an unusual stop on her latest trip to Asia. She's headed to Palawan, a Philippine island that borders the South China Sea. NPR's Deepa Shivram reports that the territory is a focus of a long dispute between China and its neighbors. Palawan neighbors the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea, which is territory that China has been encroaching more aggressively in recent years. The vice president's visit comes a week after President Biden met with Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20 in Indonesia. The White House says Harris's visit is meant to show U.S. solidarity with the Philippines. The vice president will meet with Philippine Coast Guard members on the island, and White House officials say she'll also address how climate change and illegal fishing have impacted residents there. This visit will end the vice president's second trip to Southeast Asia in just three months. Deepa Shivaram. NPR News, the White House. To Turkey now, the defense ministry says Turkey has carried out airstrikes in parts of northern Syria and Iraq. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the strikes targeted Kurdish militants accused of responsibility for a bomb attack in Istanbul last week. A defense ministry statement says Turkish jets attacked bases belonging to the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, and also the Syrian-based People's Protection Units, or YPG. The statement said the attacks were launched in line with Turkey's right to self-defense under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter and were part of Turkey's efforts to, quote, ensure border security and to destroy terrorism at its source. The airstrikes come in the wake of a bomb attack on Istanbul's main commercial avenue, which left six people dead and more than 80 wounded. Ankara says the PKK and YPG were behind the bombing, which both groups deny. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
A Brandeis University student was killed in a shuttle bus crash in Waltham last night. 26 other students and the bus driver were taken to the hospital with injuries. The bus was carrying Brandeis students back to campus from a hockey game at Northeastern University in Boston. A preliminary investigation suggests the bus hit a tree on South Street just after 10.30 last night. The university says its counseling center is available to provide support to students. No charges have been filed and no identities have been released yet. Waltham police are urging anyone who witnessed the crash or has information to contact the department. 2,000 families now have food for a Thanksgiving meal after picking up donations from the Salvation Army at multiple locations yesterday. WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports on the effort to help those in need. Hundreds of bags of vegetables, stuffing, and apple pies sat in a room at the Croc Center in Dorchester on Saturday, ready to be handed out to families. Along with the demand, the cost of provisions is higher, says Croc Center Administrator Major L.V. Carter. The price of turkeys have gone up. The price of stuffing has gone up. But the need has also gone up. So although it costs more, um, we still have an obligation uh, to meet those needs the best that we can. According to data from the Farm Bureau, the cost of the average Thanksgiving dinner is expected to be 20% higher than last year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. Ice skaters return to Boston Common tomorrow. The iconic Frog Pond rink opens for the season tomorrow at 10 a.m. Skates and lockers are available to rent on site. Members of the public also can take lessons provided by the Skating Club of Boston. This afternoon at Gillette, the Patriots host the Jets. Last night, the Bruins beat the Blackhawks 6-1. to It is 35 degrees in Boston, sunny today, breezy. Highs reaching the upper 30s. Breezy tonight, lows in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. There is painful news out of Colorado where shortly before midnight, there was a shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub called Club Q in Colorado Springs. Police report at least five people were killed and 18 were injured in the shooting. I'm joined now by Haley Sanchez of Colorado Public Radio, who is near that nightclub. Good morning, Haley. Good morning. I, you know, I want to start off by, you know, saying I'm, I'm sorry for what your community is going through. And, um, and I know this is tough, but, but what do we know about this shooting? I really appreciate that. Um, we have very limited details right now. Police received calls just before midnight on Sunday, and firefighters also helped respond to the scene. There were 34 firefighters involved, and 11 ambulances responded. Um, some of these ambulances had to transport multiple victims to local hospitals. The FBI is now investigating along with local law enforcement. Uh, we heard early this morning from authorities, Colorado Springs Lieutenant Pamela Castro spoke with the media and described the police response. Let's listen to a bit of that. Numerous officers and medical immediately responded to the area and officers immediately made entry 
They did locate one individual who turned to be the suspect inside. So Haley, do we know anything more about the suspect police say they found inside? No, we have very limited details. All we know is that the suspect is in custody, but they are being treated for their injuries at the hospital. I mean, this is beyond tragic. Like, what is, do we know anything about those that were killed and, and those that were injured? Yeah, again, there's very limited details coming out. Um, I did go to a 7-Eleven that was just about a block away from where the bar is. Um, and I spoke with a 7-Eleven worker there. He told me that his manager was on her way out um, from her shift that night. And she was approached by someone who had multiple gunshot wounds um, coming up to her seeking help. That person eventually collapsed outside the store. And then he told me that other people were fleeing the, the, the bar and coming to the store trying to find shelter. My, my my goodness. Um, what else can you tell us about this nightclub in Colorado Springs? Were you familiar with it? Is it is it a staple in that community? It's only one of about two nightclubs, gay nightclubs, I think, for um, the LGBTQ community here in Colorado Springs. So it's a known spot for karaoke, drag shows, DJ. Um, every Sunday, it was supposed to be this Sunday, too. They do a brunch there, but that's now canceled. And today is Transgender Day of Remembrance. So now they're dealing with this. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, um, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing during this difficult time. That's host and editor Haley Sanchez of Colorado Public Radio, and we will be following this difficult story out of Colorado Springs through the throughout the day as we get more information. <laughs> It took an extra day and night, but countries reached an agreement at international climate talks in Egypt. We have Nathan Rott of NPR's Climate Desk, who is there now. Good morning, Nate. Hey, good morning. Okay, so good news first. Tell us about the progress made in these talks. Yeah, so the biggest movement at this year's climate conference, without question, was the creation of a fund for something the United Nations calls loss and damage. Basically, it's a fund that will be created by developed countries like the U.S. that have prospered by burning fossil fuels and warming the planet. The intention is then distributing those funds to developing countries that didn't cause much of the warming but are already suffering the worst consequences of a warmed world. So this will go to smaller countries like many in, in the global south, right? Yeah, exactly. So like take Pakistan, right? It's been the, maybe the most cited example of this over the last few weeks and months. Pakistan experienced torrential floods over the summer, killed more than 1,500 people. The damages are expected to exceed $30 billion. Pakistan says it does not have the money to deal with this on its own. And it didn't cause much of the global warming that fueled these storms. That's why I came into this conference with loss and damage being its top priority. Uh, I caught up with Pakistan's climate change minister, Sherry Rahman, earlier, and she said the creation of this fund is historic, but there's still a lot of details that need to be worked out. If all of us uh, operationalize it the way it should, we don't create blockades in it, we don't bureaucratize it, we don't bog it down in stove piping and red tape, then I think it will start to have an impact on the ground. 
you may have noticed a couple of caveats there, Aisha. Uh, that's because there's a long history of developed countries saying they're going to take steps to help more vulnerable countries when it comes to climate change and then falling very short of those pledges. Yeah, I mean, because even in the U.S., they would need Congress to approve some of this funding, right? Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. So wh where did the talks fall short? So two big things. First, a uh, number of countries came into negotiations hoping to get a goal of having global greenhouse gas emissions peak in 2025. That's what the science is basically telling us we need to do to avoid worst case climate scenarios. That did not happen. Uh, another big disappointment for folks here was softening of language around energy systems. So climate advocates, countries, including the U.S., really wanted to see a pledge at COP27 to phase out, not phase down, all fossil fuels. James Shaw, New Zealand's climate change minister, says the U.S. really was pushing for that in negotiations, but was getting stiff pushback. You know, there is a group of countries that are working very hard to undermine Paris, to undermine Glasgow, to undermine the commitment to 1.5, to undermine any references to language around phasing out any form of fossil fuel. And it's it's hard work. Now, Xiao would not elaborate on which of those countries he was talking about uh, that wanted to undermine previous climate agreements like Paris. But we do know that Saudi Arabia and Russia particularly pushed back on that idea. So, I mean, let's step back for the big picture. Like, where do we stand on slowing climate change? So planet warming emissions are still on the rise. Uh, there's a push to start new fossil fuel development in Europe and Africa, the U.S., because of the global energy crisis set off in part by Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, that 1.5 reference you heard Shah say just a minute ago, that's the temperature that the world has kind of agreed that we need to limit warming to, 1.5 degrees Celsius. The world, Aisha, has already warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius. And with emissions rising, with the slow pace of these international negotiations, I think there's a growing understanding that it's going to be very difficult for the world to stay under that threshold. That's NPR's Nathan Rott and Sharm El-Sheikh. Egypt, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mexico lost a hero this week. Frida was a golden Labrador, and over her career as a rescue dog, she worked earthquakes and natural disasters in Mexico, Haiti, and Ecuador. NPR's Ada Peralta has this remembrance. Frida became a superstar as Mexicans picked up the pieces following devastating earthquakes in 2017. She was shown on national TV running toward the rubble. She wore goggles and little rubber booties, and she sniffed out survivors. Over the course of her career, she saved 12 people and helped recover the body of almost 50 people. And she melted hearts. Sometimes as she moved across Mexico City on the back of military trucks, Mexicans gathered and clapped. The singer-songwriter Kankel went into his studio with his guitar and made a song. Frida, you're a hero without a cape. More than Superman, no doubt, he sang.
Kankel says what struck him is that amid all of this darkness emerged this golden dog. Lo bonito es que pues estos seres peluditos pues dan puro amor desinteresado. Frida was giving unconditional love, Kankel says, and she also helped change the way Mexicans view dogs. Suddenly, they were intelligent, heroic beings. Cada vez la humanidad nos estamos acoplando más a ellos entendiendo un poquito eso. Y creo que es algo muy padre. Every day, he says, humanity is getting closer to animals, understanding their complexity. Frida died on Tuesday at the age of 13. She retired in 2019. And at the time, the Mexican Marines held a full ceremony for her. Admiral Eduardo Redondo Aramburo said her bark brought hope. Ella nos ha dicho, sin una sola palabra, Without saying a word, he said, Frida proved that hope lives in all of us. And that's why we should never give up. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up on Weekend Edition Sunday, you'll hear from the author of the book, The Future is Analog. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition. It is 35 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, breezy, highs in the upper 30s. Lows in the mid-20s tonight. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and Monday's highs in the low 40s. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. And Museum of Russian Icons, presenting Artists for Ukraine, transforming ammo boxes into icons. More at MuseumOfRussianIcons.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Police in Colorado Springs are investigating a deadly shooting last night at a popular gay nightclub. Five people were killed and another 18 injured after a gunman opened fire. The owners of Club Q are crediting the club's customers for subduing the gunman, who's in custody and being treated at a hospital. The snow that's piled up in parts of western New York is said to be taller than most people. In some spots, the snowfall is ranked among the highest ever recorded, with 77 inches in a 24-hour period being reported in the Buffalo suburb of Orchard Park. And today is President Biden's birthday. He's turning 80 years old. The White House says First Lady Jill Biden will host a birthday brunch today. I'm Giles Snyder. 
NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Right now in Ukraine, investigators from the United Nations and human rights groups say they are gathering evidence of torture and other abuses by Russian forces in the recently liberated city of Kherson. NPR's Jason Bobian has been talking to residents who describe the months-long Russian occupation as brutal and oppressive, and a warning that this report include and a warning that this report includes some disturbing content. For 70-year-old Maria Krivoruchko, the Russian war in Ukraine at first was isolating, then it was terrifying. She spent her entire life in Kherson. After the invasion, her children and grandchildren left for Germany. It's very hard without them to be alone. I miss them a lot. Russian troops seized control of Kherson within days of crossing the border. When Moscow's forces shut down the Ukrainian cell phone service, Krivoruchko found herself cut off from friends and relatives even a few miles away in Ukrainian-held territory. Then the screaming started. Just around the corner from her house, the Russians had set up a detention center in what used to be a police station. We heard these just crazy screams at night. You know, in summer, when you open the window, we heard it very well. NPR couldn't independently verify her claims. Now she has her windows covered with plywood, mainly, she says, to protect the glass in case there's a missile strike. Kherson has been without electricity since the retreating Russians destroyed the power grid, leaving the city in the dark. Krivoruchko says she doesn't know who was being tortured by the Russians or why. She just says she knows it was happening. Yeah, they kept hours, and I asked her, like, uh, military civilians, and she said, like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, because when I passed the police station, I was afraid even to look at this, because they always stayed with the guns, and I was uh, afraid. That's why I don't know who were there. One person who says he was held there is Maxim Negrov. This week, the 45-year-old came back to the compound to see the cell where he was held from March until mid-April. The Russians held everyone who had a pro-Ukrainian position. Including police officers, politicians and journalists. Negrov says the Russians beat and tortured all the detainees, including him. Negrov had served in the Ukrainian military when he was younger. I was detained for suspicion of being involved with the Ukrainian reconnaissance unit. Speaking in Russian, he says, but at the start of the war, I was just a Ukrainian businessman. Eventually, he says, the Russians let him go. 
Ukrainian Parliament Commissioner for Human Rights Dmitry Lubinets says his office is investigating allegations of widespread abuses and crimes against humanity by the occupying Russian military in Kherson. The UN says it is also looking into human rights violations committed by Moscow's forces in the city. A 25-year-old activist who was part of a Ukrainian resistance movement says Kherson was a ghost town during the occupation. If you walk by the street uh, during the occupation, you will not see a lot of people. A lot of shows will not be open. There will be not a lot of cars driven or parking. He was the local coordinator of the Yellow Ribbon Movement in Kherson during the occupation. He only wants to give his guerrilla name, Ivan, because he says he's now working with other underground resistance movements in other parts of the Russian-occupied territories. During the eight and a half months the Russians were in Kherson, Ivan and other activists spray-painted pro-Ukrainian graffiti and put up flyers and calling for residents not to cooperate with the Moscow-backed regime. During occupation, we also provide a lot of different actions, such as putting up a lot of yellow ribbons just to show Ukrainians that Kherson is still Ukraine. They also distributed leaflets warning men to not accept a Russian passport. Local officials were forcing residents to switch to Russian identification documents, particularly to get access to food assistance. But Ivan says for men, getting a Russian passport meant you could be drafted into the Russian military. If you have a Russian passport, it's the same as a ticket to the army. He says resisting Russian passports is a key message that he's trying to share in other Russian-occupied territories of Ukraine. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Kherson. Former President Donald Trump has a Twitter account again, courtesy of new CEO Elon Musk. Trump was kicked off Twitter and many other platforms after the January 6th insurrection. The company said he had glorified violence, violating its terms of service. And this comes just days after Trump announced that he's running for president again. We're joined now by NPR's Camila Dominoski to learn about the latest developments. Uh, good morning, Camila. Good morning, Asia. So what explanation has Elon Musk given for restoring Trump's account? He says it's popular demand, more or less. Musk actually created a poll on Twitter, just in a tweet, the same way any Twitter user could do. And of the people who clicked on that poll, 51.8% said that Trump should get his account back. So Musk tweeted, the people have spoken. Trump will be reinstated. Vox Populi, Vox Dei. That is, the voice of the people is the will of God. Although in this case, it really is the will of Elon Musk that matters the most. And what was missing from that announcement, there was no reference to the content moderation council that Musk had promised would meet to weigh in on these kinds of decisions. There was no reference to Twitter's terms of service or inciting violence or even to principles of free speech. He just included the poll results. And this is an unscientific poll, uh, about as unscientific as they get. Um, is Trump going to come back to Twitter? Doesn't he have his own thing going on? He does. So he has not tweeted again yet. Uh, and just yesterday, before he was reinstated, he told a Republican group that he didn't see a reason to go back on Twitter. Like you said, he's been really trying to promote Truth Social, this conservative alternative to social media platforms. And it's not just that he's on Truth Social. He owns a huge stake in it. And a whistleblower has accused Truth Social's parent company of violating securities laws, specifically around pressure to give stock to Trump. 
Trump's family. So on the one hand, he's got a vested, a, a financial interest in boosting Truth Social instead of getting back on Twitter. On the other hand, well, I mean, you know, he, he really seemed to like tweeting. Oh, I know. I, I covered him. Um, so uh, just last week, Trump said he's running for president again. Wouldn't that be a reason for him to go back to Twitter? Yeah, I mean, it was obviously a big megaphone for him. He used it often to talk straight to his supporters, tweet a ceaseless stream of falsehoods about the 2020 elections. He could elevate messages from conspiracy theorists to a huge audience. These things all, as we know, had huge consequences. And Trump told Fox News in 2017 that he didn't think he'd be there, as in be president, if it weren't for social media. I have a tremendous platform. I think I have 125 million people between Twitter and Instagram and all of them and Facebook. So right now he's back to more than 80 million followers on Twitter. Again, he hasn't tweeted this morning, but people are replying to his old tweets. And now that he's on one platform, it'll probably be easier for others to reinstate him. I mean, take Facebook. They only suspended him for two years, and that will expire in January. In, in about 30 seconds we have left, just to go back to Elon Musk. He said he did it because of the poll, but do you know why he really is doing this? I mean, the list of possible explanations is long. Politics, principle, self-interest, distraction from the turmoil at Twitter, pure impulse. It really depends on how you feel about Elon Musk, which one you believe. That's NPR's Camila Dominoski. Thank you so much, Camila. Thank you. The South Korean cultural phenomenon K-pop gets the Broadway treatment when a new musical simply called K-pop opens this week. Reporter Jeff London spoke with the creators of the show. Shortly after the start of K-pop, the audience is immersed in a high-energy performance of a song called This Is My Korea. A girl group with five singers comes on stage to an electronic accompaniment and first sings in Korean. Swaying their arms and hips and wearing colorful short skirts, the singers switch over to English, like in many K-pop songs. Then a boy band with nine singers comes on, doing the same material, but with macho, smoldering movements. And then they all sing together. Even though K-pop is an unconventional musical, there are no traditional solos or duets where characters sing their emotions, director Teddy Bergman says This Is My Korea functions like an old-fashioned Broadway opening number. There are many ways in which that song is like our version of tradition from Fiddler. Like it introduces a set of a kind of big thematic banner for the evening. K-pop is a kind of MTV behind the music story about a fictional Korean label presenting a concert in New York City. Between the dynamic performances of spot-on songs in different styles with outrageous costumes, the audience gets a glimpse inside the pressure cooker K-pop factory, where performers are driven to perfection, often at personal sacrifice. What I was really interested in going into this was the psychology behind an international star. Korean-born author Jason Kim has written the show's script, which he says takes some tropes from Korean television melodramas. 
what do people like BTS, what do people, uh, CL, what does she think when she gets up in the morning and what is her day to day and what is it like before she goes on stage and what does she think of her stage performance and how does it affect her relationships and et cetera, et cetera. The show has several performers who are actual K-pop idols, including Luna, who plays the show's star, Mui. Luna has also appeared in musicals like Legally Blonde in Korea. Director Teddy Bergman says she brings authenticity and vulnerability to the show. She's one of those people who has that very rare gift, I think, of being almost like transparent on stage. Like, you can just read everything that's going on with her effortlessly. And as a singer and dancer, she's just virtuosic. One of the show's songwriters is Helen Park, who was born in South Korea and loved K-pop as she was growing up. She's the first Asian woman songwriter on Broadway and has created all the electronic backing tracks, which a small offstage band plays along with. Park says the score reflects the wide variety of K-pop styles. Every musical moment, I think, is kind of different from each other. And we have ballads, we have reggaeton, we have new disco, we've got like progressive house, we've got everything in the pop medium. As catchy as the music is, Max Vernon, who has co-written the score with Park, says the authors have tried to make the songs reflect the emotional states of the characters on stage. One song called Wind Up Doll is performed by Mui after she's rehearsed with an abusive choreographer. That song is so sparkly, it's so effervescent, it puts a smile on your face, and it is like this narrative of like a doll that you buy that is full of joy and full of life. But if you actually listen to the lyrics, they're pretty sinister. You know, it's like, you push the gear, touch me that way. At times, the audience at K-pop behaves as though it was at a concert, not a Broadway show. People whoop and cheer and move along to the music, says Helen Park. K-pop as a genre and K-pop as a phenomenon, I think, is so welcoming. It's inclusive, it's inviting. And fans of K-pop music learn the dances from videos, then post their own versions on social media. Choreographer Jennifer Weber says some of the musical's fans are already doing the same. It's been so cool to see that in our audience, like to watch people already starting to do dance covers of, of things and to like become fans of the groups themselves. In K-pop, the musical, life is imitating art, is imitating life. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy secured the backing of his conference in a leadership vote last week, the first step in becoming the next Speaker of the House. But he was challenged by Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs, who wants a shakeup in his party's leadership. And now people say, well, don't change the status quo because the majority is too thin. So what they're saying is, well, let's just never change the status quo. 
I think the American people want us to change the status quo, and I think the members do. McCarthy easily defeated Biggs this time, but to be elected by the full House in January, McCarthy has to get votes from almost all of those who backed his challenger, and many of them are part of a group called the House Freedom Caucus. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now to talk about that group and the sway they'll have next year. Welcome to the program. Hey, Aisha. Remind us how this group got started. Like, what is their origin story? So the House Freedom Caucus was formed back in 2015. It's a group of hardline House conservatives who didn't think their leadership at the time, it was led by then House Speaker John Boehner, was conservative enough. Some of the founding members of the group are people like Mark Meadows, Mick Mulvaney. I'm sure you recognize their names as former Trump administration officials. Meadows used a tool at the time to try to bring up a resolution to remove Boehner as speaker. It didn't work initially, but it was basically a warning shot and a no-confidence vote for Boehner. He did step down before he was officially forced out. The House Freedom Caucus members want to slash federal spending. They want to shrink the role of the federal government, and they want to defund many of President Biden's priorities. What are they demanding now? Right now, they don't want to agree to any big spending bill during this lame duck session of Congress. But more broadly, they want McCarthy next year to give members more of a role in shaping legislation. Texas Republican Chip Roy is one of these conservatives who's talking about how he wants to change operations in the House. The country is begging for change in this town. The fact that we haven't offered an amendment on the floor since May of 2016 speaks for itself. Like, it's just absurd. But, you know, since they've been around, the House Freedom Caucus has a reputation for derailing legislation, not much of a record of actually getting many policies through. So what is Kevin McCarthy's relationship like with members of the Freedom Caucus? It started out rocky. I mean, back in 2015, he couldn't get their votes when he ran to replace Boehner as speaker. But McCarthy's made a point to develop good relationships with some key members. He's on good terms with Jim Jordan, one of these leading conservatives. He's in line to chair the House Judiciary Committee. So Jordan is essentially going to be part of the leadership table next Congress. McCarthy kept making the point this week that holding the majority means controlling committees, controlling the agenda, and acting as a check on the Biden administration. But he also stressed with the razor-thin majority, they have to be on the same team. We know our job will not be easy. We know the task. We've got a close majority. We're going to have to work together. So, I mean, is he going to be able to win them over? And, like, what will that mean for how Republicans govern? It's going to be a grind. Biggs released a long post on Friday insisting he will never vote for McCarthy. And he says his voters want him to fight. One thing McCarthy's doing right now is trying to listen to all of their demands. A lot of them are kind of weedy changes to how committees operate, how amendments are handled. He's overseeing this process to write rules for the next Congress, things that Republicans all support, like doing away with the mags outside the chamber that were put in after January 6th. But others are much bigger changes that moderates aren't going to want to agree to. Even if McCarthy can get votes from the House Freedom Caucus for speaker, it doesn't change the fact that this group is going to have a lot of power because you are only going to need a handful of votes to blow up the leadership's agenda. That's NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Aisha. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
The Middlesex District Attorney and the Waltham Police Chief have confirmed information about last night's fatal crash of a shuttle bus in Waltham. The bus was carrying 27 students to Brandeis University. The crash on South Street killed one student. The other passengers and the bus driver were transported to hospitals. Brandeis officials say they believe that 17 people have now been released from hospitals and 11 have been admitted for further care. The cause of the crash remains under investigation. No charges have been filed. Tomorrow is the deadline for companies that want to apply for a mobile or online sports betting license in Massachusetts. Applications are due by 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. 30 companies recently completed a survey expressing interest in acquiring a license. The state will issue up to seven such permits. Two roadways might have slowdowns this morning because of movie production. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation says the filming will be underway until 7 this evening on the Tobin Bridge and on Route 93 between exits 16A and 21. No lane closures are planned. It's 37 degrees in Boston, sunny and breezy today. Temperatures in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Early Music Festival with their Grammy-winning chamber opera series, Thanksgiving Weekend in Boston, the 26th and 27th, BEMF.org. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. When you give a modest monthly gift to WBUR, you're giving a very big gift to our entire community. You're giving everyone the journalism that is the oxygen of democracy. And when you support WBUR today, you'll get a little something as our thanks a year of The New Yorker in your mailbox and on your digital device. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Do I hear a kid in the background? (laughs) You got to just say, hey, Reggie. Hi. Hi. (laughs) And that pretty much sums up working from home since the pandemic began. It's also a perfect way to introduce our next guest, David Sachs. Like millions of us in March of 2020, he was thrown into a digital world full of Zoom, virtual school, and online grocery orders. And though we still had contact with one another, there was a sense that something essential was not right. It was missing, lost. In his new book, David Sachs explores what the digital world takes from us. It's called The Future is Analog. What I'm referring to is the world beyond our screens, the world beyond computers, Mm. the world beyond digital. 50, 60 years ago, I mean, the computer was this thing that was in a room in an office somewhere, and it had a very specific task. Now the computer is everything, right? It's It's the record player. It's the camera. It's the way you socialize, it's the way you do work, it's the way you connect to school, and often that's just the phone in your pocket or the tablet in your kid's hands. And so it's the all-encompassing nature of that. Mm. So what do we miss then when we rely too much on 
that phone, that tablet, you know, just being connected and plugged in all the time. Well, I, I think what we miss is what you're saying there, but in a much deeper sense. It's the connection, right? Connections that are digital are weak connections. Even this conversation, I'm not saying it's weak, but if you and I were in the studio, <laughs> I think it's very strong. <laughs> I'm loving it. Uh, we would have body language, eye contact. Yes. I, I would see the way yes. you would raise your eyebrow when I'm saying something, and I would say, oh, that point is landing with her well. Or, I don't think she gets that, or maybe I should change, or actually, I think she wants to speak now, so I'm going to shut up. And and I have none of that now. I just have the, the, the sound of your voice that's been processed and is beamed through into my headphones. And so what we miss is the entirety of the world that we as animals, as physical creatures on this earth, have evolved to experience, right? With all our senses, with all our emotions. For my entire life, the future was sort of predetermined to be digital and increasingly virtual. And now that we're there and we've had a real taste of it, we had a test drive of it for months or years, you know, if we can't step back and learn from that, then we're just gonna keep hurtling on to this direction until, I don't know, we're all sad in the metaverse. Well, you know, I want to talk to you about like what you gained when you unplugged um, and decided to really connect with your surroundings. Um, there's this section of your book on page 224. Are you? Do you have it with you? Are you able to? I do. It? But on the seventh day of quarantine, a Friday, I decided to bake a challah, the traditional Jewish Sabbath bread. It had been years since I'd baked challah, but we were up in the country and the local bread options were wider than the gene pool. I figured it would be a nice thing to do for my kids. And besides, who doesn't love fresh bread? Mix the flour, water, oil, eggs, salt, sugar, and our only pack of yeast. Let the dough settle, then began kneading. Fold, push, spin, flip, thwack. Fold, push, spin, flip, thwack. Fold, push, spin, flip, thwack. So what did that moment mean for you? Like that physical thing of making the dough, of baking it, of, uh, of, of observing Shabbat with your family. Like, what did that mean for you? To me, it was a reclamation in a way. Um, and, and I guess a, a regrounding because the stress of everything, the, 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 deluge of information that I was trying to gather about this virus and the situation, the, the necessity to do work and to try to get my kids on school and, 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 and just constantly pinging between screens, it had untethered me from myself, my body and the sort of world around me. And so making that challah, baking that bread, it was the same as when I went for my first walk outside. It was the same as when we went for our first hike in the woods. It's in those moments when we allow ourselves to be away from screens and fully in with our bodies and engage with the world that we are reclaiming who we are. So, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about when it comes to digital technology is this idea of that it's innovation and it helps with convenience, making life easier. But as you're talking it seems like, and, and during the pandemic, it seems like a, a lot of people would agree that there are unintended negative consequences. So what is that balance between having the innovation, having the convenience, but not losing your humanity? 
Yeah. Well, I think that's, that is the task that we sort of have to set ourselves to find out in the next years and decades, because there's, there's two certainties, right? One is that digital technology is only going to continue evolving and getting um, more sophisticated, more powerful and having more applications. Um, and the other thing that will consistently remain true is that we are human beings and that the needs we have as physical analog human creatures on this planet are going to always remain central. And so the challenge we have isn't accepting the newest innovative technology in the quickest way possible. I think that's that's maybe where we went wrong. That when someone tries to sell us something new and say, this is the new way we're doing things, we actually can tap back into the feeling we had during the years of the pandemic when we only had digital and say, is this gonna make my life better? Is this gonna serve me as an individual or my company or my school or my community or my city? Is this going to aid that? Is this technology going to actually help that and make it better? Or is it going to get in the way? And I think if we can, each of us, whether it's individually or, you know, a company or an organization or on a bigger scale of community, if we can start asking those questions and learning how to balance the technology and judge whether something new and innovative is actually the right thing or what parts would make sense, then, then you know, the future is bright. David Sachs is the author of The Future is Analog. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much, Aisha. Devotion is a film about the power of trust and friendship against all odds. It tells the true story of an elite Black fighter pilot overcoming adversity in an all-white naval company during the Korean War. The swim test in flight school, they made me do it 10 times. They dumped ice in the water, put weights in my flight suit. But every time I made it out, can't tell you how many times people have told me to give up, quit. That's why you can't always do what you're told. If I did, I wouldn't be here. Jonathan Majors, who plays pilot Jesse Brown and Glenn Powell as wingman Tom Hudner, star in the film that's out this week. J.D. Dillard is the director of the film and joins me now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aisha. So talk to me about how you came to this story. It's based on a book, right? But you also have some family history um, with the Navy, right? Uh, I do. So about 30 years after... Jesse and Tom, my dad was commissioned uh, into the Navy as a Naval Flight Officer. So, you know, when I first sort of read the script, I, I kind of found my way crying throughout the whole thing, not just because Jesse and Tom's story is so incredible, but kind of baked into Jesse's story, I just saw so much overlap with my dad's experience in the Navy. So to be able to kind of tell both of these stories at the same time was, uh, I won't joke, it was kind of overwhelming. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like, what were some of the similarities that you saw? Because as you said, this happened, you know, your father entered the, the Navy 30 years after Jesse. And so did he face some of those challenges Jesse faced? You know, he, he did face some similar challenges. You know, there there were still, you know, the, the handful of folks who don't understand why you're there or even want you to be there. But I think almost, you know, more what the movie plays with was kind of the isolation, you know, to be in such a high pressure environment and looking to your left and right, and there's no one else that looks like you. And that that takes a very specific 
toll on you when you're alone and in an environment like that. And I think so many of us at times still feel in, you know, our sort of respective worlds. Mm. One thing that just stood out to me was when you talk about that issue of trust. Yeah. I feel like a part of the film was about what it really means to be an ally, what it really means to yeah. be a wingman. And it seemed like that was something that Tom Hudner, that character who was white, that he struggled with a bit, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of the paradoxes for Jesse, you know, the very thing that has been so crucial to him getting to where he is, is also, you know, the thing that makes it hard for him to connect with some of the folks that, you know, he flies with. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of the fundamental drama between Jesse and Tom, you know, Tom being someone very eager to, to wanting to figure it out, but doesn't quite have the language to, you know, the nuance required to actually be there for someone is quite a bit more complicated than I think, you know, sometimes we give credit to. But, you know, even though the story takes place in 1950, you know, we felt that there was a lot of space to have a very sort of modern conversation around, you know, true allyship and sort of have that be the beating heart of the movie. We do know and, and talk about and see challenges that Jesse faces to get where he is. A lot of the story is kind of told from Hudner's perspective, but like, why take that approach? Well, you know, I'd say this we really want it to actually be from Jesse's point of view, but there are a couple of pieces that Jesse is hiding from everyone, you know, Tom and the audience included. And to really bring the audience in on some of those, we sort of get a whisper of this ritual that Jesse does. And it's only later does Jesse kind of show us what that really is. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's a, it's a kind of incredible thing that we found out about him in that he would write, you know, down all of these hateful things that people have said to him, um, you know, over the course of his childhood. We don't want to give too much away, but as, as you mentioned, there are these very intense scenes um, where Jonathan Majors asked Jesse, is looking at himself in the mirror and and repeating these racist insults about himself. T talk to me about what did you want to convey with that? Well, you know, in that scene, it, it is in a, in a movie where, you know, we don't necessarily spend in, in traditional biopic way the sequence of his whole journey to get to this moment and the notebook full of, you know, hateful things being a, a, a real thing that Jesse, Jesse did as a boy. We knew that that would be like a really kind of heartbreaking and kind of implicating way to show the audience, you know, really what the path has been and, and what it cost him. Jonathan being the, the incredible actor that he is, really made that personal for himself. And even when it came down to the day, you know, there's obviously what was written in the script and then there's wherever an actor has to go to really tap into that. Um, and at a certain point, you know, the, the, the words that are coming out of Jonathan's mouth are, are not even what's in the script, but it's just the sort of almost ancestral connection to that feeling that we've all had where you hear the voices that have um, told you you can't do it and, and you, you hold them almost as a reminder to help you push through. I mean, and, and you do take time to expose the audience to Jesse Brown's family, Daisy and his and his very young daughter. Like, why was that? something that you wanted the audience to see, to see that relationship, especially with Daisy? Well, you know, it's what makes 
Jesse's heartbeat, you know, um, and and I feel like there's sort of this <laughs> expectation in a military movie that you got to focus on the conflict and, you know, start cutting the stuff out with the family so you can spend more time at the conflict. But to really show who Jesse was and I think to even earn the weight of our title devotion, you, you first had to understand his relationship with his wife. Well, your husband's quite the aviator. Well, he must feel the same way about you. Because you and Carol Mooring are the only boys from Fighting 32 that he has ever invited over. A lot of time in very small spaces. May I ask you a favor? Uh, of course. Second he steps on that ship and into that plane, I can't protect him anymore. So I need you to be there for my Jesse. Okay? Okay. Did you ever talk to your father, who, as you said, was a naval a naval aviator, about um, the idea of what it means to fight for a country that does not necessarily fight for you? You know, we did. And we talked about that and, and so many other aspects of what it means to be, you know, a black man in that cockpit. And I, I used him quite severely throughout this entire process. You know, it was sort of the emotional consulting, <laughs> you know, it was it was asking him, you know, what what was it like to tell mom for the first time that, you know, you were going to leave? What is it like balancing the sort of fear of safety with having a newborn? It, it was it was sort of the 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 fruits of those conversations are um, were ultimately, I think, way more important for what the film ended up being. That's director J.D. Dillard. His new movie, Devotion, is out this week on major streaming services and in select theaters. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. My God, thanks for having me. Following the latest on that shooting in Colorado last night, at least five people were killed and 18 were injured in the attack after a gunman opened fire in an LGBTQ club named Club Q in Colorado Springs shortly before midnight. According to a statement on the club's Facebook page, patrons managed to intervene and subdue the shooter, who was in custody and hospitalized with unspecified injuries as of last night. Colorado Governor Jared Polis released a statement this morning calling the shooting horrific, sickening, and devastating. And police there are about to hold a press conference in a few minutes and will update you and will update you with what they share. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody, and thanks for spending the weekend with 90.9 WBUR. The latest news headlines start the hour, and check back for all things considered this afternoon at 5. Stay connected with the WBUR mobile app.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at ClarkLiving.com. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. A Massachusetts police officer is arrested for drunk driving outside Seattle. Should be this my life. Everything that I've worked for, 16 years in the military, 6 years in police, that I've worked for for my entire life. I just... He has a DUI history, and he's one of many Massachusetts police officers who were hired by one police department after being fired or quitting another over misconduct. We call it the officer shuffle. Our story tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Democrats in the House will have new leadership next year. Longtime Congressman Jim Clyburn says he wants to help support them. The old is called upon because they know the way. The young, uh, because of their strength. And thousands of neuroscientists gathered last week will have more on the latest research. Plus, grab the kids. We're joined by some very animated guests to talk about their Thanksgiving podcast. Here's a hint. Yeah, the other, the other, the other. That's all, folks. And the puzzle. It's Sunday, November 20th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Five people are dead and 18 others are injured following a shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado last night. Colorado Public Radio's Haley Sanchez reports. Giovanni Bowden works at a 7-Eleven near Club Q in Colorado Springs. He says his manager was leaving the store at the end of her shift when she saw someone who was shot multiple times seeking help outside. Bowden says the victim then collapsed outside the store. There's uh, people from the club who came over here too that were, you know, just shooken up and so they want to come somewhere where they can feel safe. One suspect is in custody and is being treated at a local hospital. A motive for the shooting has not been determined. For NPR News, I'm Haley Sanchez in Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs police say the FBI is assisting in the investigation and that authorities will offer more details on what happened this hour. The owners of Club Q are crediting the club's patrons for subduing the gunman. Police say they responded after uh, receiving an initial report of the shooting just before midnight. Contentious climate negotiations in Egypt have come to a close, and while a historic agreement has been worked out, NPR's Nathan Rod reports a COP27 conference is getting mixed reviews from climate advocates. The most progress at COP27 came in the form of what negotiators call loss and damage. Rich countries agreed, after decades of stalling, to help create a fund that will help more vulnerable countries deal with the effects of climate change that they're already dealing with now. Other issues countries like the U.S. and climate advocates wanted to see addressed, like a global pledge to phase down or out all fossil fuels, not just coal, did not happen. 
The language stayed the same as what was written in last year's climate conference in Glasgow. A rapid transition from fossil fuels, scientists say, is needed to avoid the worst-case climate scenarios. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Sharm El Sheikh. The competition at the Men's World Cup Soccer Tournament in Qatar begins today. The first match is between the host country and Ecuador. The U.S. begins play tomorrow afternoon against Wales. And NPR's Michelle Callaman reports Secretary of State Antony Blinken is planning to be there. The State Department is promoting the trip as part of its sports diplomacy. Asked about the reports of a high death toll among migrant workers building the stadiums, a top State Department official, Daniel Benayim, said the Biden administration is committed to promoting human rights. The United States has been discussing human rights with Qatar and with other partners in this region at all levels, and we will continue to do so long after the World Cup concludes. He wouldn't say if Secretary Blinken plans to raise specific concerns about how LGBT fans might be treated during the World Cup. Homosexuality is illegal in Qatar. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to... NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A college student has died after a shuttle bus headed for Brandeis University crashed last night. The crash sent 27 other people to the hospital. Brandeis officials say 17 people have now been released from local hospitals and the rest have been admitted. Officials say the bus hit a tree on South Street in Waltham near the western border, less than a mile from the edge of the Brandeis campus. The Middlesex County DA's office says the shuttle bus was on its way back from a hockey game at Northeastern University in Boston. A Brandeis spokesperson says the bus was returning from a Cambridge and Boston regular route. The university says its counseling center is available to provide support to students, and the school is encouraging Brandeis students to gather as a community at 11 this morning in the Shapiro Campus Center. It is Thanksgiving week, and Project Bread is calling attention to food insecurity. The Food Assistance Nonprofit reports that more than one-fifth of families with children in Massachusetts are food insecure, and that's twice as many as before the pandemic. Project Bread CEO Aaron McAleer says the need also increases at this time of year as heating bills and holiday expenses stretch people's budgets. The inflation is having a huge impact. You know, we're hearing from people every day who are calling us for support and and saying that this is the first time they've called and they have reached um, the end of their rope. McAleer says Project Bread is seeking financial donations to help meet the need. If you have ever dreamed of owning a fire truck, then this could be your chance. The city of Brockton is auctioning off a 1981 Mack fire truck. Bidding began on Halloween and ends tomorrow at 11.58 a.m. Of the eight bids so far, the top one sits at $4,800. In sports this afternoon, the Patriots take on the Jets in Foxborough. It is 37 degrees in Boston, plenty of sunshine today, a breezy Sunday, and highs in the upper 30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thanks for being with us. There are recounts and a runoff still in the works nearly two weeks after the midterm elections, but the numbers in the House and Senate are essentially holding steady. We're joined now by NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Good morning. Hey, Aisha. So uh, Democrats have maintained control of the Senate. Republicans have taken the House. But with such thin majorities, um, what will this mean for actually getting things done in January when in Congress is always hard to get something done? Yeah, we're talking about divided government, so not much likely to get done without compromise. But that hasn't exactly been Congress's M.O., especially for House Republicans over the last decade plus. So expect a pretty confrontational Republican House here. You know, you're going to see um, Kevin McCarthy, the congressman from California who wants to be speaker. He or anyone else who wants to be speaker, they're going to have to make some pretty uh, steep concessions to the hard right in their party. So that will not incentivize getting much done across the aisle. Instead, we're likely to see, I think, a lot of spectacle uh, investigations, including about uh, the president's son, Hunter Biden, the IRS, um, even potential impeachments of Biden administration officials. Of course, none of that's going to go anywhere in the Democratic Senate, but Republicans are going to try to grab some headlines for sure. Um, meanwhile, Democrats, uh, you know, it'll be a new generation of leaders stepping forward for the first time in 20 years. Nancy Pelosi stepping down as the head of the party's caucus in the House. Uh, and being in the minority is not a bad time for a leadership shift. Uh, it'll give Democrats a chance to work out the kinks. They'll have a common enemy in uh, Republicans to unify them. And Pelosi's still sticking around, uh, so she'll be there to advise them. And, you know, she's going to go down as one of the most effective speakers in history. So what are some of the priorities for the lame duck session? A lot of things on the on the plate here. You know, Democrats going to try and address a bunch of things. Um, the debt ceiling, for example, they may try to make it automatic. Not sure they have the votes to do that, but they're going to try. Uh, that would take away what could be a really key piece of leverage for House Republicans come January, who are going to try and force some spending cuts by threatening the nation's credit, really. Um, They've also uh, just simply got to fund the government. So expect an attempt to get what they call an omnibus spending bill through that could have a lot of Christmas ornaments on it. <laughs> Little priorities <laughs> for each district and state. Uh, another priority is passing the National Defense Authorization Act, aid to Ukraine. Uh, we could see a push to codify same-sex marriage. That's being negotiated with a bipartisan group in the Senate. Democrats also likely to make a push on a fix for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Uh, federal courts are expected to end in that uh, executive order that was originally issued by President Obama a decade ago, um, you know, more than 600,000 people who were brought to the U.S. when they were children um, are currently shielded from deportation under the program. So pretty big deal. Lots to do. And, and that's DACA that you're referring to, right? Yes. And, and so and there are some, you know, still some recounts and potential challenges to some results in the works. Like, what are you watching for there? You know, everything's basically wrapped up. I mean, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert's Colorado district is headed to an automatic recount, even though her opponent has already conceded. Only about 500 uh, votes separate them. But I have to say, Adam Frisch, the, is, is a, the Democrat, uh, former Aspen City Councilman, he's already filed to run again in 2024. So you can bet it's going to be a lot of money that comes into that race, uh, you know, in, a, in over the next couple of years. Arizona, of course, you know, has been something of a hotbed for election denialism. You know, 
know, Trump or Republicans, uh, you know, like Carrie Lake refusing to concede uh, the governor's race there, even though she lost by over 17,000 votes, very close, but outside the 0.5 percentage point margin for an automatic recount. She says she's amassing a team of lawyers to challenge a result. It's, of course, her right, but this has been a very closely watched tabulation, no evidence of widespread fraud. Probably not the last time we've heard of Lake, though. Uh, She was spotted at former President Trump's Florida home, Mar-a-Lago. In just a few seconds we have left, uh, speaking of uh, Trump, uh, he did announce for the presidential campaign in 2024. There's also a special prosecutor that was named to investigate him this week. What does that mean for Republicans? Yeah, they really did not uh, want him to necessarily announce right now, especially after a slate of his candidates had lost. So it's going to be really interesting to watch how that winds up affecting things and if anybody else gets in the race. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you so much, Domenico. You're welcome. And we're joined by the current number three Democrat in the House, the Majority Whip. That's Congressman James Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning. How are you? So I'm good. I'm glad that you're here with us. I know you put out a statement, but tell us, with the leadership changes ahead for House Democrats, what are your plans? My plans are to be of whatever assistance I can be with the new leadership coming in, making sure that our party continue to reflect a, a pursuit towards a more perfect union and not get distracted Uh, over what seems to have overtaken uh, the Republican Party. It is so easy to allow yourself to get into a contest with who can yell the loudest, uh, who can get the most hits uh, on Twitter. That is not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in passing on to my children, my grandchildren, and all others similarly situated a good, vibrant country for them to grow up in. Both you and and Speaker Pelosi are 82. Age gets brought up a lot. Do you think that's fair? Or do you think the focus needs to be more on switching up strategy? Well, in this business of politics, uh, most things are fair. Yes, it's fair. This whole notion uh, of age being uh, the dominant factor, well, be very careful about that. I didn't believe that when I was a 25-year-old because I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian church which says that the old is called upon because they know the way, the young uh, because of their strength. So I've grown up believing there must be a healthy balance of knowledge and strength in order to get things accomplished. And so, I mean, you're going into the minority. How are you going to get things done? It's going to be tough. And that's why we have to have an inside and an outside game. The inside game, uh, this new team on the ground, Hakeem Jeffries and um, his whip and head of the caucus, are going to have to manage things in the Congress, in our caucus. I don't want them to have to worry about whether or not they are doing things the way uh, the Divine Nine uh, that is all the sororities the and fraternities, fraternities and sororities, whether or not the faith community, which I am a member of, whether or not the campuses of historically back universities are in tune to them. You've got a guy sitting there with you who's got a great relationship with all of them, know those communities real well. And that's what this is all about. 
having an inside game and an outside game. I have been inside for a long time. I plan now to move uh, to do what I can with the outside game uh, so that these uh, three people can get their sea legs. Congressman Clyburn, you were pivotal in uh, President Biden, becoming President Biden, getting that nomination. Um, I know that you have said that uh, people need to focus more on substance than style. And I believe you've said that you support him running again because you believe he's done well on the substance. Do you think the substance translates to people who are voting? Well, what I said is I will support him if he runs again. He is going to make a decision, he said, uh, over the holidays in con- uh, consultation with his family and will let everybody know after the first of the year. Now, if his decision is I'm running, I'm going to be out there with him. Because I do believe that the American people responded in the election to his approach and his agenda. It was a great agenda. And I think that's why uh, we were able to hold the Senate, and I think we're going to pick up a seat in the Senate, and keep it so close in the House. A lot of recognition for Speaker Nancy Pelosi over the last few days. Uh, Do you have a story that you can share about her leadership? Well, you know, I was Nancy Pelosi's uh, whip. And um, uh, the best story uh, that I have on that happened to be uh, back when we were trying to pass uh, the so-called cap-and-trade bill. I'll never forget that bill. We were having real trouble. Uh, We were approaching the weekend. She asked me what I thought. I said, I think we can get within uh, three votes, but I don't think we can get there. Let's put this vote off and come back next week and see what we can get done. She asked me to show her my list. I did. She took the list. She looked at it. Then she looked at me, handed me the list back and said, let's call the vote. I was shocked. We called the vote. We passed the bill by two or three votes. When, according to my best count, we would lose by two or three votes. That, to me, told me the value of Nancy Pelosi. I covered energy, so I remember that. It did pass the House. It never passed the Senate, but it did pass the House. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, House Majority Whip James Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina. Thank you so much for having me. We are following news on a horrific shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado that left five people dead and 18 others injured. Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers is joining local police in a press conference right now where a police spokesperson said that there are likely more injured as some drove themselves to the hospital. Colorado Governor Jared Polis released a statement earlier this morning calling the shooting horrific, sickening, and devastating. The incident happened at Club Q in Colorado Springs shortly before midnight last night, and according to a statement posted on the club's Facebook page, the gunman was subdued by the club's customers. Police took the suspect, who was injured, to a hospital for treatment, but he remains in custody. Deputy Chief Adrian Vasquez said 22-year-old male named Anderson Lee Aldridge. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and 37 degrees in Boston. 
Sunny skies today, breezy, temperatures in the upper 30s. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a Boston-based nonprofit advocating for climate-smart policies and a net-zero economy. More at CERES.org WBUR. The Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, offering programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of Beacon Hill. Now open at 71 Charles Street. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Police in Colorado Springs say the FBI is assisting in the investigation into last night's shooting at a gay nightclub. Five people were killed and 18 others were wounded before the gunman was subdued by patrons. Authorities say the suspect is in custody and is being treated at a hospital. Western New York has gotten even more snow. Some areas have more than six feet on the ground, with 77 inches reported in the Buffalo suburb of Orchard Park. The snow began accumulating Thursday night, forcing authorities to restrict road travel and airlines to cancel flights just ahead of the busy Thanksgiving holiday. And former President Donald Trump is being allowed back on Twitter. Trump has been reinstated after owner Elon Musk polled Twitter users. A narrow majority voted for Trump's reinstatement. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Migration is as old as humanity, and climate change compounds the pressure on people to relocate. All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro has been reporting on the connections between climate change, migration, and the political far right, along a path many have traveled, from Senegal to Morocco to Spain. Today, Ari reports on the first job many people from sub-Saharan Africa take when they arrive in Europe. When you talk to people in Senegal about Spain, you sometimes see a dreamy look across their face. When you go to Europe, if you get sick, you can go to a doctor. In a Senegalese village called Ganjol, a man named Mamadou Nyang told us he's tried to reach Europe three times. Two times he was deported, the third time his boat capsized, and some of the passengers drowned. But even that has not deterred him. He still wants to leave. Yeah, I would like to go, so I can earn a good living and have a nice house. He envisions Europe as a place of stability and security, somewhere you can earn enough money to support your relatives back home. More than 2,000 miles to the north, in Madrid's Plaza Mayor, you can see the chasm between the fantasy of life in Spain and the reality. We're wandering around the city center looking for Monteros, the people who sell goods off of blankets. And it is really hard to find them because they are always running from police. So 
to have a conversation with these guys on tape is difficult, but not nearly as difficult as living that life where you are constantly afraid that you're going to get pulled in and arrested. Monteros are named for mantas, the blankets where they spread out things to sell. Their typical inventory includes knockoff designer handbags, tennis shoes, sunglasses. Everything gets spread out on a blanket. Long strings tied to all four corners help ensure a quick getaway. So if police show up, the Monteros can turn their manta into a sack over their shoulder like Santa Claus and make a run for it. Hello. Hi, how are you? Kifi is a 27-year-old from Senegal. We're only using his first name because he doesn't have a work visa. He says the Monteros who sell counterfeit goods off blankets can make more money, but they take much bigger risks. So Kifi sells African trinkets out of a little fanny pack. These bracelets aren't fake. So the police can't arrest you for selling bracelets, but if you were selling fake Dior bags, then they could arrest you. Yeah, I'm selling African things. There's no brand, so it's fine. Kifi left home in Senegal when he was 19 years old and traveled by land through half a dozen countries before reaching Spain. You have not seen your family for eight years. You must miss them terribly. Yeah, even today I want to go back. I want to see my mother. Eight years is so long to not see my family. I'm sorry, that's very, very difficult, and I'm sorry. He won't go home until he has papers to re-enter Spain legally. That's supposed to happen after three years, a more open policy than the U.S. But every time a Montero gets arrested, it can set back the clock. One guy just walked past carrying, he was a Montero, he had this big sheet full of goods on his back. And as he walked by, I said, Vous êtes Senegalese? You're Senegalese? Over shoulder, he shouted, Wait, yes, and ran away. And I tried to pursue him. He was not having any of it. Y yo por mala suerte, el primer día que fui a vender, I had the bad luck of being arrested the very first day I went out to sell things. This is someone who eventually got his papers, who no longer has to run from police. Serene Mbaye arrived in Spain from Senegal in 2006. In the years that he worked as a Montero, he was arrested four times. Eventually, he helped organize the first Monteros Collective in 2016. Do you remember the first time you heard the word Montero? I got to the main train station and saw them. And I actually asked, what is this? And they explained. And I knew it would be something I would have to do, because these are the only jobs you can do without papers. Do you remember the feeling when you saw that and had that realization? Una decepción, yo decía, esto es decepcional. Eso es lo que me ha traído aquí en ese país. Yeah, I was so disappointed. I thought, is this what I came to this country for? This can't be my destiny. But there's nothing else you can do. And we're all in the same situation. So we look out for each other and help each other. Being a Montero was not Serena Mbaye's ultimate destiny. Today, he's a political leader, an elected official, and that has mobilized anti-immigrant politicians. The day Serena Mbaye was sworn in, Rocio Monasterio of the far-right political party Vox spoke in the General Assembly denouncing Monteros. Monteros are slaves of the mafia who push small business to bankruptcy, she said. Right-wing politicians continue to attack him for his past, but today, Serene Mbaye is a deputy in the Madrid Assembly. A friend of his told us he's like the Malcolm X of immigration in Spain. 
On All Things Considered later this week, we'll have the story of Serene Mbaye's journey. That was NPR's Ari Shapiro. You can hear more of his reporting on climate migration from Senegal to Spain on All Things Considered. Tune in on your local NPR member station or follow his team's journey on NPR.org. When the U.S. and its allies looked for ways to sanction the Russian elite, they zeroed in on their super yachts filled with luxuries like heated pools and wine cellars. But as Stephanie Baker reports, the powerful symbolism of seizing a super yacht is followed by the expense of maintaining those pools and wine cellars and everything else aboard these floating palaces. Stephanie Baker is a senior writer at Bloomberg News, and she joins us now. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So you've written a series of articles on the West's seizure of these yachts from Russian oligarchs. What have you learned about what goes into maintaining these types of boats? Like, you can't just let them sit at the dock? No, it's not a case of turning off the lights, locking up the door, and leaving them until the war in Ukraine is over. These things take an enormous amount of money to maintain, even stuck in ports. They have to be staffed with a you know minimal crew to be on board in case of accidents, fires, fuel spills, the like, you know, for insurance purposes. Insurance is another cost. They need to be washed so they don't entail a multi-million dollar repaint job. And, you know, it's an incredibly costly process and complicated. Is part of the issue they don't know what they're going to do with them? Well, in the case of the U.S., they have vowed to sell them eventually through a complicated process called forfeiture, where they have to go before a judge and prove that this super yacht has been bought with the proceeds of crime or involved in some kind of crime. And that is a lengthy, difficult process, especially in the case of Russian-linked super yachts, because it's not always clear who the owner is. One forfeiture expert compared it to seizing the proceeds of a drug lord. A drug lord may not have his mansion in his own name. It would be in his girlfriend's name. So there's a long process to establish not who owns it on paper, but who's really controlling it, who's directing it, who's making decisions about it. So when the U.S. or the EU seizes a yacht, the cost of maintaining that yacht, it actually goes to the taxpayers, right? Like, so how much money are we talking about that taxpayers are paying? It is U.S. taxpayers that are paying for it, at least until they do sell it and then can recoup the costs. Typically, it costs 10 percent of a super yacht's value to maintain it. But when it's frozen in port, the cost will obviously be less. It's not eating as much fuel by cruising at sea. I did a lot of reporting to try to establish what are the real costs of keeping these things in port. And I came to a pretty conservative estimate of something like 3%. Now, in the case of one super yacht, the one that the U.S. government seized and sailed from Fiji to San Diego, I established that the annual costs of keeping that in port are about $10 million a year. Mm. So $10 million a year. That's for one yacht? That's for one yacht. For and one And that's a yacht. conservative estimate. Okay. And so altogether, do you have any sense of how much that might be? Well, globally, including the EU and the UK, they've seized more than 15 super yachts 
and we're talking tens of millions. But if you're a sanctioned Russian oligarch with your asset frozen in a port, how long are you really going to pay? So we're looking at potentially years of litigation over these uh, vessels about who's paying, you know, the maintenance, and they're essentially going to be in sort of legal purgatory for many years. And so, I mean, most of us will never step foot on a super yacht. So it's hard for us to imagine what is the most outrageous luxury that you've come across or one that, you know, really stood out to you. Right. So I went to the Monaco Yacht Show at the end of September and got on board one of the most luxurious, expensive super yachts. It was just the most incredible floating mansion. It had hand-painted bathrooms, handmade curved bar, a pool, elaborate bedrooms, you know, very high ceilings, multiple decks. They are the most extravagant status symbol, really, amongst the billionaire class. That's Stephanie Baker, senior writer at Bloomberg News. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. About 23,000 brain scientists gathered in San Diego last week to hear the latest discoveries on how the brain works and how it can be disabled by disease. NPR's John Hamilton was there, too, following the science wherever it led. So a brain scientist walks into a bar. Actually, in this bar, pretty much everybody is a brain scientist. Excuse me. I'm looking for neuroscientists. We are. In the right I don't know way. if I technically fall in that category. We are neuroscientists. I'm an enthusiast. We don't have PhDs yet. Don't be fooled. The enthusiast is Matt Zeromi, who works in the lab at the University of Michigan. I do dynamical modeling for seizures, epilepsy. His friend Emma Hewells is also from the University of Michigan. I study the role of different cortical regions in consciousness using anesthesia and psychedelics and looking at how they change the brain. Matt, Emma, and the two other scientists at their table have spent the day at Neuroscience 2022, the five-day annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience. Emma says it's not like the other professional meetings she goes to. There'll be like hundreds of people, but in terms of thousands of people that are flooding the streets of San Diego and you can look around and everybody has some sort of interest in the brain, like that's very special. Two tables over, I find several other brain scientists who are a bit further along in their careers. Hi, I'm uh, Nikolai Urban. I'm the head of the Light Microscopy Corps at the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. A place that helps researchers study even the smallest detail of a brain cell. Urban says this year's meeting is a big deal because COVID-19 prevented in-person events in 2020 and 2021. We tried virtual meetings, but there is just no comparison. There is none of the inter interpersonal engagement. You don't strike up spontaneous conversations. You don't meet people in the hallways. You don't just like see everyone. That was Tamara Markovic from Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. She studies brain changes associated with drug addiction. This is just one bar in San Diego's gas lamp quarter. On this evening, pretty much any place with a good happy hour is teeming with brain scientists from around the world. The neuroscience meeting is so big that many scientists have to stay at distant hotels and take a bus to the convention center each morning. Some will head off to lectures by the world's leading brain scientists. But the real action takes place in a vast hall where less famous scientists present their work on posters and chat with anyone who shows an interest. I am Kanathip Chungmi from Thailand. From Thailand? Yes, just call me Tan. Tan is studying how language processing changes in the brain over a person's lifespan. 
Not far away is Max Crane, standing in front of his poster. I'm from the German Primate Center in Göttingen, Germany. And oh, it's my first time in the U.S. <laughs> in your first SFN meeting. Yes, in my first SFN meeting. SFN as in Society for Neuroscience. Crane's poster is about, well, I'll let him tell you. Using camera-guided electrode microwave navigation for precise 3D positioning of electrodes in brain target volumes. He's talking about a system that helps scientists record signals coming from an exact location in the brain. It's the kind of technology the brain scientists here are likely to be chatting about later on at one of the local bars. John Hamilton, NPR News, San Diego. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Remember just a couple of months ago when we came within hours of a nationwide rail strike? Well, we could see a repeat of that early next month. The nation's freight railroads are still locked in contract negotiations with several rail unions, and a significant number of workers are not happy with the deal that's on the table. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. Roughly 30% of freight in this country moves by rail. Everything from cars to corn to barley for making beer. So you can imagine how disruptive it would be if the trains suddenly stopped. And it wouldn't just be freight trains. Some Amtrak and commuter trains would be affected too. The railroad industry says a rail shutdown could cost the nation $2 billion a day. President Biden thought this nightmare scenario had been averted back in September. An emergency board he appointed had worked out a framework for a deal. Workers would get a 24% raise over five years and some quality of life improvements. This is a win for tens of thousands of rail workers and for their dignity and the dignity of their work. It's a recognition of that. But the rail unions still had to vote on it, all 12 of them. Seven unions have since approved the deal, but three have voted no, so they're back negotiating, and we're still waiting on two more. The way it works, if any one union decides to strike, all of the unions will honor the picket lines. Reese Murtaugh, a mechanic based in Richmond, Virginia, is willing and ready. I want one of these unions to call them out. Let's see what actually happens, you know? Murtaugh's union voted narrowly to approve the deal, but he was a no vote. The raises, he says, barely keep up with inflation. Healthcare premiums could almost double. And the deal includes no paid sick days. That was perhaps the biggest disappointment. Our jaws hit the ground. We were like, what? Where are the sick days at? Now, the railroads will point out their workers do have short-term disability insurance. It kicks in after a waiting period. But they don't get the kind of sick days that can be used when you wake up with the flu or you have a dental emergency. Murtaugh says it's infuriating, especially after rail workers showed up all through COVID, even when the virus was spreading unchecked. One team I was on, half the team came down with it. We just worked with half the guys. <laughs> we just went out there and put rail in with half the crew. We never skipped a beat out there. Meanwhile, the railroads have been highly profitable, setting new records in 2021, in part because they've dramatically reduced the workforce by around 30 percent. The unions argue that they can well afford to be more generous. The railroad industry says the contract on the table is already the most generous in modern history. But deep in the report produced by Biden's emergency board, Murtaugh found another reason the railroads are not offering more. It's on page 32, and I'm leafing through here to find it. It's in the section that addresses the railroad's huge profits. Here it is. 
The carriers maintain that capital investment and risk are the reasons for their profits, not any contributions by labor. Murtaugh's first thought after reading that? Are you serious? The words stung. He thought back on his years as a traveling mechanic, including during the pandemic. 14-hour days, trudging through all kinds of terrain in all sorts of weather, missing his young family back home. He printed out the page and posted it on his union bulletin board the next day. And everyone was like, what is that? It's fueled his desire to see a rail strike. He thinks it may be the only way to have their voices heard. He knows that Congress would likely intervene to stop a strike and that workers could end up with less than what's on the table now. But that's a risk he wants to take. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The fatal crash of a shuttle bus bound for Brandeis University is under investigation. The crash last night killed one college student. 27 other people were sent to the hospital. Brandeis officials say 17 people now have been released from local hospitals and the rest have been admitted for treatment of injuries. The shuttle bus was contracted by Brandeis University and crashed into a tree on South Street in Waltham. No charges have been filed. The Waltham police urge anyone who may have witnessed the crash or who may have any information to contact the Waltham Police Department. The university says its counseling center is available to provide support to students, and the school is encouraging Brandeis students to gather as a community at 11 this morning in the Shapiro Campus Center. It is 37 degrees in Boston, sunny and breezy today with highs in the upper 30s, lows in the mid-20s tonight. Tomorrow, increasing clouds and Monday's highs in the low 40s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra with Benjamin Zander, performing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony at Symphony Hall today. BostonPhil.org. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, multipolarity. After squandering our Cold War victory through two decades of war, Americans may be looking at the end of our global dominance, but if we're lucky, it could be a new age for cooperation, as in Joe Biden and Xi Jinping in Bali this week. A new era is next on Open Source, today at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FJC, a foundation of philanthropic funds, working to meet the needs of the nonprofit sector through donor advised funds, fiscal sponsorships, and bridge lending. More at FJC.org. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. (laughs) 
Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's Puzzle Editor of the New York Times and Puzzle Master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it uh, was sent in independently by two people, Steve Baggish and Neville Fogarty. I said, think of two well-known companies with two-syllable names, starting with J and D, respectively, whose names rhyme. And I said, one of these companies was founded in the last 10 years. What companies are these? And the answer is Jordash and DoorDash. Wow. I would have never gotten that. <laughs> but it looks like a lot of people did. This was uh, this was actually a popular challenge. So out of over 1,000 correct submissions, Flora Greenberg of Albion, California, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? Uh, about a year and a half. I only started listening to public radio once I moved out to the woods. What do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Uh, I have a homestead, about a very old cabin and 20 acres, so a lot of gardening, a lot of work, and I also do a lot of mushroom foraging. Flora, are you ready to play the puzzle? I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, take it away, Will. All right, Flora and Aisha, I'm going to read you some sentences. Each sentence has two blanks. Put homophones both starting with S in the blanks, to complete the sentence. For example, if I said, the skunk blank a strong blank through the neighborhood, you would say scent. The skunk sent a strong scent through the neighborhood. Answers always start with the letter S. And here's number one. The company is opening a new blank mill to blank business from a competitor. The company is opening a new a cell uh -huh. What's a standard kind of uh, mill in Pittsburgh where they do metal? Oh, oh steel mill. Steel, steel mill. mill to steal business from a competitor. You got it. At feeding time, my dog blank at me as I walk down the blank from the second floor. Stairs and stare. You got it. The hilarious joke about Santa getting stuck in his blank would always blank an audience. What does Santa travel around in? Oh, his sleigh, to slay an audience. His sleigh would slay an audience, right? When the jokester poked me in the blank after making a pun, I blank wearily. Poked me in the stomach? In the side. I sighed wearily. Side, you got it. You sighed wearily. Good. Anyone on a fixed income is likely to become blank when prices blank. Anyone on a fixed income is likely to become blank when prices blank. Prices are shoot up, shoot. Uh, and what do what does a, a rocket do when it goes up fast? It would soar. There you go. Like to become soars, right? You send me was the blank number one hit by blank singer Sam Cooke. Soul singer, soul. There you go, soul number one hit. That's factually accurate. I verified that. The blank of the numbers was off by blank amount. Thumb, thumb and thumb. You got it. And here's your last one. The revolving display of pens in the blank shop became broken, and it was blank from then on. The pens in the, oh, stationary, station. The stationary shop. Good job. 
<laughs> well, look, Flora, you did an amazing job. These sentences are a little, they a little tough. They, they, they get the brain muscles going. How do you feel? Uh, relieved like everyone else and maybe a little embarrassed I don't know <laughs> no, no no you did great come on yeah you did great so for playing our puzzle today you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games you can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle and Flora what member station do you listen to uh, KZYX that's Flora Greenberg of Albion California thank you so much for playing the puzzle Thank you, guys. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from Henry Picciotto of Berkeley, California, and he co-edits the weekly out-of-left-field cryptic crossword, which I love. Name a branch of scientific study, drop the last letter, then rearrange the remaining letters to name two subjects of that study. What branch of science is it? So again, a branch of scientific study, drop the last letter, Rearrange the remaining letters to name two subjects of that study. What branch of science and what are the two subjects? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this upcoming holiday week is Wednesday, November 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. After nearly two decades of negotiation, the country's largest dam removal project is finally ready to go. Late last week, federal regulators gave the final approval to remove four hydroelectric dams from the Klamath River in southern Oregon and northern California. Cassandra Profita from Oregon Public Broadcasting has this report. In late August, whitewater rafters splash gleefully over boulders in the upper Klamath River. It's an awesome adventure, wet and seemingly wild. For rafting guide Bart Baldwin, there's nothing like it. This is the biggest bang for your buck that you can get in the summer. 95 degrees, 72 degree water, 42 named rapids, and they're long and exciting and explosive. It's pretty unique. But it's not natural to have so much water in the Klamath River at the end of August. The water released from Pacific Corp's J.C. Boyle Dam upstream from the rapids is the only reason big rafts can float this stretch of the river all summer long. And when it's gone, the river will flow more naturally, and its water levels will be too low for big whitewater rafting trips in the summer. That means Baldwin will have to redesign his rafting business. I feel like I'm losing a good friend. <laughs> I've run this river a lot, and it's my favorite. I don't know, it just feels like home. But the dams are also blocking salmon from swimming upstream and polluting the water salmon depend on. For Native American tribes in the Klamath River Basin, that's an existential threat to their culture and their fishing traditions. My goal is to fight for those fish and keep fighting for them until I can't find any more. Troy Hockaday is a Karuk tribal council member and a fisherman in Northern California. He says the salmon will have a lot more spawning habitat after the dams come out. It's gonna be one of the best things for our fish in our fisheries to where I can have my grandson who's one years old today to be down there fishing and also here, grandpa, here's a fish. I can't wait for that day. Pacific Corp agreed to remove J.C. Boyle, COPCO-1, 
Capco 2 and Iron Gate dams to avoid the cost of helping salmon swim around them. And so that would have been very expensive, just adding modern fish ladders. Bob Gravely is with Pacificorp. He says removing the dams was actually the cheaper option, and the electricity they generate is easily replaced. It's less than 2% of the utility's supply. This year, amid ongoing drought, irrigation water for farmers and ranchers in the Klamath Basin was cut off to protect threatened and endangered suckerfish in Klamath Lake and salmon in the Klamath River. Gravely says the dams don't store water for agriculture, and removing them won't solve any water supply problems. The dams, they don't take water out of the river, so there's still going to be the same water supply at the end of the day. But opponents of dam removal say they're worried farmers might have to give up irrigation water to flush out the sediment stored behind the dams. And they say scientists can't guarantee that salmon won't be harmed when all that sediment flows downriver after the dams come out. This is seen as, in many respects as a grand experiment. We're going to try it and see if it works. Our concern is that it won't. Brandon Chris chairs the Board of Supervisors in California's Siskiyou County, which is home to three of the four dams slated for removal. He says the dams benefit surrounding communities by providing tax revenue, jobs, recreation, and lakefront property on the reservoirs. And all of that will be lost when the dams are removed. See, if it doesn't work, we have all the problems but none of the solutions, and we're left holding the bag. Supporters of dam removal say a free-flowing river will ultimately mean cleaner, colder water with fewer toxic algae blooms. Hockaday says he's containing his excitement until deconstruction is underway. The dams are going to come out, but I'm not going to celebrate until I see an excavator on top of the dam moving that rock. And once that day happens, then you'll see me jump up and down and scream and holler <laughs> to the creator about what's happening. But until that day, I mean, we still got a little more to go, but that's the day I'll celebrate. The dam removal process is on track to start next year with the biggest dams scheduled to come out in 2024. For NPR News, I'm Cassandra Profita in Portland. Are you headed out on a long car trip this Thanksgiving? Well, so are Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck in a holiday-themed podcast, Bugs and Daffy's Thanksgiving Road Trip. It might be just the thing to keep your little ones entertained. Dad, did you hear that? It sounds like the big ones at Warner Brothers want us to come to their Thanksgiving feast. Thanksgiving? You expect me, a duck, to celebrate a holiday whose entire purpose is the idolization of a turkey? The creative minds over at Story Pirates work with Warner Brothers Studios to give some favorite Looney Tune characters some new adventures for your podcast feed. Director and producer Lee Overtree is here along with voice actor Eric Bowser, who plays both Bugs and Daffy. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Eh, what's up, NPR? Oh, my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I get to speak my public. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is going to make my year because I love Looney Tunes. But I will start with Lee, and then we're going to definitely talk to Eric so why a Thanksgiving road trip? Like, did you go on a lot of road trips at Thanksgiving as a kid? Oh my gosh, one of my greatest memories as a child is going on road trips and listening to cassette tapes. Families are listening to audio content in the car a lot. And there's a lot of different ages of family members in the car together listening, little kids, big kids, adults, and what better 
subject matter than Bugs and Daffy to entertain everybody all at once. Yeah, you know, I have to say I started listening because I wanted to see what it felt like to listen to it, you know, because you don't have the visuals. It's almost like you don't notice that because the voices are such a huge part of Bugs and Daffy, right? Mm -hmm. How do you make that entertaining enough for kids because you don't have the visuals of the anvil hitting him? Well, with audio, you have the best visuals ever created, which is those in your imagination. We grew up watching the classic Warner Brothers shorts, and when we made this podcast, we wanted it to be as centered on physical comedy as those shorts are. And so we worked really hard to create audio that would inspire your mind to hear exactly what is happening and see it happening too. Is it hard for you, Eric, to go between the voices? I mean, first of all, Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny are my favorites. <laughs> Daffy Duck is my favorite. No offense to Bugs, because I love Bugs too. But <laughs> Daffy is like my favorite because he just goes off on people and I just feel his like rage and like, you know, <laughs> all of that grandiosity. I think I think a lot of people <laughs> want to be Bugs, but really are Daffy. Yes, yeah. Uh, You know, I grew up watching Looney Tunes, I'm sure, like a lot of the listeners did. And, uh, of course, the great Mel Blanc, who created the voices of these characters and and actually the personalities, did such an amazing job that 81-plus years later, we're here talking about Bugs and Daffy on a road trip, and they're still as relevant as they were back in the 40s as they are today. I think that is the key ingredient is just paying homage to the original formula. And uh, you could pretty much tell the story any, anywhere, any season, you know, I'm waiting for their Easter road trip. I'm waiting for uh, Hanukkah yes. road trip. I'm waiting for uh, <laughs> yeah, Halloween road Christmas, trip, you know, yeah. there could yeah, be any one of them. The um, possibilities yeah. are endless <laughs> with story pirates. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I want to ask you a quick question about like, what's the difference in the flair between like a Bugs voice and a Daffy voice? Like, is it the personality? What's the difference? Yeah, Bugs Bunny, uh, of course, Mel Blanc originated that voice. And, it, you know, kind of a nasal type voice that's like up here in the nose, up here. And then you kind of mm-hmm. add that uh, Brooklyn and Bronx type accent, Doc. And uh, that's it right there. <laughs> and Daffy is... Uh, is like a little bit lower, a little bit more rough, and of course he has that duckbill uh-huh. lift. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I am so fangirling. So I mean, right now these are the biggest celebrities I've ever talked to. But when you look at this, Lee, I mean, my kids know Bugs and Daffy. How did you approach like bringing these characters to a new generation? You know, we really look to the masters. We don't feel like. Anyone could do this better than the folks who originated it. Me and my colleagues as Story Pirates, we've really spent our careers studying those shorts as a way into comedy. And so honestly, to make it relevant for a new generation, we just tried to be as inspired by the older generation as possible. That's director and producer Lee Overtree and voice actor Eric Bauza. And we had a little bit of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck 2 kids, so you heard them. Their podcast, Bugs and Daffy's Thanksgiving Road Trip, can be streamed on your own road trip or in the kitchen when you're cooking, wherever podcasts are found. Thank you guys so much.
Thank you, Aisha. Oh, Porky, there's only one way to end this. Yeah, the, 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 uh, that's all, folks. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com go. Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. Thanksgiving can be stressful, especially if you're the one cooking, and even if you're a celebrated cookbook author like Melissa Clark. There is something about the turkey that's just made to <laughs> to put us through our uh, to put us through the motions, to really put us through the ringer. But we're here to help Thanksgiving dinner in a pinch. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at five on ninety point nine WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.